Amen. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks, guys and gals. Just uh, remind people, uh, next Sunday is actually Tyler's last week leading worship with us. Um, this morning, I was like, whoa, that's suddenly happening. Um, but um, we'll be praying. We're praying for Tyler at this transition and uh, praying for what's next for New Song Church in this area. But there'll be an opportunity for you guys to write down your thoughts next Sunday. So uh, plan to be here. Uh, also, um, if you... Uh, Arnie will be here next Sunday. We're basically going to have some cards that we can write a message to Tyler and Tori, wishing them well for this next uh, phase of the journey that God has them on. Uh, we will also have them available in the office after Sunday so we can get them to them. It's just an opportunity for you guys to, to share with him. Uh, ben, who was just sitting there a minute ago, is interning again with us for this next uh, semester. So he's going to be leading worship uh, along with uh, Bobby Schneider is going to be doing some filling in as well. As we just really look at what worship is, what, mu- what place does music take in a church, and really kind of explore that whole thing even before we, we think about what is next for this aspect of our ministry. We really want to do a good job of thinking about it seriously, reflecting upon what it should be, like especially for our mission in our community, what is this aspect of, of uh, church uh, supposed to look like here? And it may be a surprising uh, Answer, maybe Calypso, maybe that's what we need, right? Or something completely different, I don't know. But God's got a plan and we're gonna endeavor to find out what that is. We have a small group of people of different ages who've been involved in worship ministry and music who are gonna get together and really pray and think through that whole thing. Um, Yeah, so talking of people who uh, step out uh, into what God has for them, a young woman, I introduced her a number of weeks back, Melissa Calderwood is in uh, Ecuador uh, Quito, Ecuador, and is on an adventure there um, in ministry and with her school, learning about herself and about God and about that country. Uh, and this morning, she has produced a video for us uh, for the scripture this morning, which is in James chapter 4. Um, and so let's watch uh, Melissa in Quito, Ecuador. Hey, New Song Church. My name is Melissa Calderwood, and I'm currently studying abroad in Quito, Ecuador. Um, While I'm here, I'm taking classes. I also have an internship at a safe house for women who've been trafficked. And then additionally, this weekend, I'm entering homestays, which is a time where we stay with a local family for about a month. Um, And then additionally, um, in about a week and a half, we will be going into the jungle for a mission trip. So I just ask for your prayers in that. And I'm just super expected and excited about God showing up there. Um, So yeah, this morning I'm going to read the text for you guys. It comes from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and it says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to the city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So, yeah, I hope you guys are just blessed in hearing um, the word of God today. Thanks, Melissa. Interestingly enough, in the first service, uh, uh, a woman came up to me after the service and said, do you remember me? And I was like, vaguely looked familiar, and she said that uh, she was someone who had actually broken down in our driveway. Her car, her and her friend had run out of gas. So Tyler and I actually went and figured out how to help her, got some gas, got her going, and, and she said, I'd love to come visit sometime the church. So it was like a year ago. And today is the day she felt, you know, she'd come a couple of times maybe to the pantry and something else, but didn't, couldn't remember my name. And so hadn't managed to connect. This morning she came, came up afterwards and said, 
I'm from Ecuador, and you're talking about Ecuador this morning, and I felt this was the day to come. It was so good. And so it was this awesome, like, I had that little connection there with Melissa being there. It's a big world, and God sends us to all kinds of places, but also this is, this is part of a mission right here in, in our neighborhood. This is where he wants his people to be fully entering into and engaging with his work in our community. Uh, a big part of that is prayer. Uh, actually, after the service, a group of people who are involved in prayer ministry are going to be gathering to, to think through and to learn some uh, skills about how to offer prayer at the end of our service and how to do that in a really consistent and helpful way. A uh, big focus this year is prayer for us, uh, as always, but we really want to make it more of a part of what we do and who we are. So as we've been doing every week uh, this year, uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Uh, this morning, we're going to do a little, something a little bit different. I'm going to pray for some people uh, whose issues I'm aware of right now. Uh, but then there's going to be a moment of silence where we can just silently lift up uh, the needs that we're aware of. Uh, so those of us uh, who are in relationship with people who are having uh, issues of uh, mind or body or spirit, um, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe that we, we join with God in that. And not only does, does somehow that it has an effect in the world, but it changes us. Uh, and the main thing it does is it causes us to have a heart of compassion for people and they enter into their suffering and their struggle, which is what Jesus does through his people. Um, so well, let's pray together. Uh, I'll, there'll be a, a moment of pause for you to lift up uh, the needs that you're aware of. Let's go to God. Father God, we come to you acknowledging our weakness and our need of you. And we also come acknowledging your strength and your love for us. We pray for the sick among us who are sick in mind, body, spirit. Heal them, we pray. We praise you for our sister Minerva and rejoice that she is healing strongly and that surgery was not necessary. We pray for Lydia's continued healing. We pray for Duke Drager as he recovers from surgery as a transplant donor for a young child. We pray for the Trides as Linda walks through her father's serious illness. Give she and her family wisdom as they make decisions. We pray for Grace Sierra and ask that you would comfort her family as they mourn the passing of her sister. We pray for Travis North and the, the illness that he is experiencing. And Lord, we pray for Susan and Dan Brownwood, whose daughter Gracie was struck by a, by a truck and is in hospital. And it sounds like she is making a recovery, Lord. We just pray that you be near that family in this really terrible situation and bring healing to her. And now we pray for others. We thank you, listening, acting, God, present in our world, in all these situations. We thank you. We pray for the church around the world and in our own neighborhoods. We pray for those who are persecuted for their faith. We pray for victims of war, of famine. 
and the out-of-control power and greed of human beings. We pray for rulers and authorities. Humble them, we pray, and reveal to them the seriousness of their responsibilities. May your church be willing to be the conscience of the nations and be willing to speak up even if it costs her to do so. Give each one of us wisdom and discernment as we seek to navigate this world according to your commands and promises. May we be found faithful when you return. Please, Lord, don't pander to our need to be comfortable, to be powerful, to be relevant, to be spectacular. Keep us humble and open our eyes to what is true, what is real, what is beautiful, what is worthy of our time and effort. May we have what we need each day for the work that you are leading us into. And may we, with joy and expectation, put our hands and feet, heads and hearts into the work. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've had a new schedule starting the beginning of this year uh, for a couple of reasons. Basically, I'm taking Mondays off now, as of the beginning of January. One reason is that I have this incessant need to be busy all the time. For some reason, I'm just like relentlessly busy. Um, and the second reason in, in, in alignment with that is that people who love me told me I need to just stop one day a week and do nothing but rest. <laughs> um, and actually, the first time it happened, I felt giddy with excitement, like a little kid Christmas morning. I was like, I, I'm, I'm like, this is the day off? But like, I didn't realize until, you know, basically my sister and my, my wife said, like, stop, you've got to do this. So Mondays is a day off, and it's wonderful, to, but tomorrow I'm already excited about it. It means I can rest, and I can read, and I can do other things that need to be done, and things that just kind of fill my soul up. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to go for a hike. Every Monday, I try to do some kind of walk or trip or hike with my wife, Rona, and any of my kids, either of my kids who want to come with me. Uh, with us. So last Monday, we headed out on just such a trip, and the last Monday, the choice was the chillingly named Ice House Canyon. Has anyone been there? Has anyone been there in February? <laughs> okay, so there's a hint. So Ron here and I headed off in our van up toward Mount Baldy to find the trailhead and have a nice seven-mile round-trip hike. And as we drove up the road, we noticed there was signs of snow at the side of the road. I'm like, well, that's unusual. Uh, this is Southern California, snow. Uh, and then I noticed actually on the, on the low-lying hills there was more snow. And I thought, oh, wow, there's kind of snow around here. Um, and then we got to the parking lot and there was signs saying you need a permit to park here. And we're like, oh, okay, permit. Oops. Uh, search through the glove box. We've got all manner of permits, some from Washington State, some are federal, some are state, some are like, what the heck, right? But looking at the other, the few permits that were around on people's, you know, rearview mirror, I was like, hey, we have that one, there it is. But the permit part was not in the thing, it was at home. It's like, great. Um, so I asked a person, you know, that was getting in our car, like, hey, what do you do, you know, to park here? What kind of permit and stuff? She said, well, you have to go back to the village, go to the office, pay the money. And I was like, man, this is really kind of, we're not doing a very good job here. Um, so Kira, our daughter, suggested we just park at the side of the road because she'd been there before and that's what they did. And we thought, well, maybe we could do that. And as we were kind of talking through this whole thing, I realized I'd forgotten my water bottle, which was a good thing to forget when you're going on a hike. And not only that, but my, my T-shirt, my one T-shirt and my hoodie were, were being penetrated by this icy cold wind that was kind of coming down the valley. 
Um, and the name Ice House Canyon started taking on a whole new reality as a place to visit. Um, even if we chose not to hike the whole trail, any gain in elevation was going to be a drop in temperature. This started kind of dawning on me slowly. Hmm. Uh, the handful of almonds that I had in my pocket suddenly didn't seem as nourishing and nutritious as they had when I was in my kitchen at home. And it suddenly, slowly dawned on all three of us that we were woefully unprepared to set foot on this particular trail. Um, we had not planned appropriately for this hike at all. What were we thinking? To continue on uh, was possibly going to be foolish, well, definitely foolish and possibly dangerous. So we got back in our van, we drove back down the hill and did a lovely little couple of loops around Padua Avenue Park and then we went to Taco Bell. <laughs> Much more sensible, we were prepared for that. And we lived to tell the tale. So we're, we're, we're gonna do that hike sometime, but we're gonna be much more prepared. For example, several people came up and said, yeah, you don't wanna do that trail in February. Wait till like summer, because yeah, it's icy and it's dangerous and it's mostly in the shade. That's why it's called Ice House Canyon. The clue was in the name, you dumb Scottish fool. It reminded me of a time when I was, uh, my friends and I, we had summited Ben Nevis, the highest mountain in Scotland, which compared to American mountains is not very high, but the weather there can be atrociously brutal. And we were coming down the other side only to be met by some tourists in t-shirts and shorts coming up the trail the other direction and, and, and saying like, is it far to the top? I'm not saying they were Americans, but they may have been. Uh, and, and we're standing there, are all waterproofs and hiking boots and backpacks, and we're like, yeah, it's, it's quite far to the top. Yes, we don't recommend that. Um, you've heard maybe the expression attributed to Benjamin Franklin, which says this, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. This message this morning is about making plans, and even more simply, just about how, our live, how to live our lives according to the best kind of plan. Like, what is the, the roadmap or the preparation? What is the daily practice of, of getting to where you need to be uh, as best you can. The what, the how, the when, the why, the where, and the who's of our lives. And I'm sure that we all have difficulty knowing how best to plan our lives sometimes. Um, but not only that, our inability to predict what's happening or how our choices that we make may turn out uh, eventually. Is anyone here this morning who's at a time in their life when they're in the, in the midst of making a big decision or on the verge of having to make some kind of big decision? Anyone? Yeah, okay, life decision. Right, there's a few people uh, who, who are seeing that. And for the rest of us, you may not be in that place right now, but it's gonna happen. It's coming. Um, and, and we have a reason, I think, good reason uh, to be somewhat anxious about what the choices that we make. And, and James is gonna tell us a little bit about that uh, this morning, I think. Um, Ron and I are in the middle of trying to sell a house on Orcas Island. We were totally blessed by a couple of the church where I worked who felt that... that God wanted us to have a place to live that was more uh, stable than where we were living, and so they actually lowered their price down to allow us to, to buy the house. Well, within two years of making that plan, we're putting roots down, we're never leaving here. God said, go to seminary, Grant. Take your family and go to a land I will show you. Um, and so we did. We, we, we felt clearly it was God, so we left. But you know, we've been really thinking and praying about the fact that we're still very rooted there because of this piece of property, and we decided it's time to sell it and that we put roots down here. Um, but it's scary because we, we don't really, it's been rented out for six years. We're not entirely sure of the condition of it right now. We don't know how it will go. Our, our tenants are moving out on March 1st. They will be responsible for the mortgage and utilities. And how that's going to be that extra burden financially. Um, will we get what we need? 
Um, all the sort of minutia of, of tax laws and like, real estate laws. My, uh, Mr. Lazo, yeah, you know about that, right? Um, do you ever wish you could just fast forward your life six months or a year from now and find out what it's going to be like according to the choices you make? How's it going to turn out? Every time in that situation, I think, I wish I could just go crystal ball future. Oh, well, I probably shouldn't do this then because it's going to end up there, right? Um, and God's word, has, God's word has some things to say to us this morning about planning, about living our lives through his servant, James, whose letter we are studying. And we're going to be challenged, I think, towards something really wonderful, life-giving, and fundamentally good when it comes to making plans. It's just five simple statements in this little text that Melissa read for us. And how does it begin? How does James begin? He says this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. That's how he starts. He's, he's addressing to a certain particular group of people who have a certain particular attitude to life that comes from a certain understanding of what it is that they're supposed to be doing or what they might do. And really, it doesn't seem like there's anything much wrong with that. James, at the beginning, talks his letter is to these people who are in a kind of difficult situation. They're kind of exiles out in the world. There's obviously been some kind of persecution. These are Jewish believers in Jesus who have been kind of set out into the world and they're different places, and it's challenging. So maybe this just sounds like a really good idea to them, a plan for success. They might think, perhaps today or tomorrow, not sure yet, I'm gonna take a boat from Rome or wherever I am to Athens or Jerusalem. I'm gonna take some goods that I bought at a fairly low cost and I'm gonna sell them at a profit. Now, what is wrong with that? That sounds like a good plan, really. Um, but there's something James is trying to get across and it's all to do with attitude, kind of a worldview, kind of a sense of uh, what life is about and how to live life and how to plan. And there's kind of a formula in here that tells us how this how this is, and, and it's, I'm just gonna share what the attitude of, of the people he's addressing would be. It's I will, I will go, I will go today or tomorrow, I will go to this or that city, I will go there for a year, I will carry on business, I will make money. What is the common denominator in all these plans? All these, it's I will, I will do this. I will go, I'll decide when to go. I'll decide where to go, I'll decide how long to stay there, I will decide the purpose for being there, and that purpose will be determined according to how it profits me. It's just clear that this is a, this is a very much a, an individual sense of me. I will make these plans, I will fulfill them, and I will, I will determine how it turns out. And James has really strong words for this kind of way of living. In fact, it almost seems out of proportion with, with this seemingly kind of benign nature of that statement, but what he's getting at will be revealed as he shows us this the brokenness of that kind of approach to life, the self-centered, I will do this. I'm the best I've got, and I'm gonna make it happen. Um, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. He calls this Boasting, evil boasting? What is boasting? What does that mean? Well, here's an example of boasting. I grant I'm the best golfer in the world. That would be boasting, right? Boasting is really um, ignoring the truth about who you are and, and stepping it up and presenting something that, that is actually not really true based on the reality of, of who I am. I am not the best golfer in the world and 14 guys are gonna discover that truth next Saturday. 
I tried to have an excuse, by the way. I've got this sore shoulder, and I was like, this morning I saw Gerald, who's going to be, who's a golfer, very good golfer, and already I'm setting the groundwork for either being lame at golfing or just not doing it altogether, right? Um, and I was like, yeah, my shoulders even bother me. Turns out he's trained in all kinds of ninja, you know, muscle fixing, and he fixed, it feels great now. I'm like, ah. But it's boastful to speak above, beyond my capacity. I think that's the human nature. We, we speak beyond what is the reality. James is gonna tell us some really basic, fundamental truths about ourselves that leave us in a place where we cannot boast. And he says, for you to say, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, is to be boastful, and that is, is, is evil, he says. Arrogant schemes, what does that mean? What is arrogance? I think fundamentally, arrogance is, is base, basically, it's arrogant to live as if I'm the only person in existence. I am the center of the universe. And then he talks about schemes. I will pursue whatever schemes I need to pursue to make this happen. I don't care who gets in my way or what gets in my way. I'm gonna make it happen. And he says that this is foolish, this is evil, this is arrogant, this is boastful. And, and James wants us to see that, that we don't live in isolation in this world, that every single thing that I do has a consequence in the world that God created, the world God loves. So James wants us to see the truth about ourselves that would lead us to reject this kind of life and to step into a different kind of living, a different kind of way of being. So what he does first is he shines a bright light on the truth of who we really are, kind of strips away all the bravado, all the you know, sense of confidence in ourselves as a basis for living, before he can tell us something better, he must humble us. So what does he say? James chapter four, verse 14, he goes on. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what happened. You say, I will do this, I will do that, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this. You don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What a pep talk, man. He should have a bestseller in New York, New York Times book, you know? You know nothing and you're gonna die soon, it's called. That would be a hit. Two things to notice. He points out two particular things about human beings that should cause us to reject a solely me-centered approach to life. The first is that we are limited in knowledge. We are so limited in knowledge. The second is we are limited in time. We are limited in time, and I think we, we, try, we try to imagine that we are neither of those things. The first, we're limited in knowledge. He says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know. You know, we're, we're pretty amazing creatures, really. The human brain is so intelligent and ingenious. We've invented all of these kind of like machines and ingenious devices to, to make life easier, better, but yet, the fact remains that we can't control much at all. We are so small. We are not in control. It's always amazing to see how like an earthquake can just like every this shallow veneer of civilization that we attach to the crust of the earth could be shaken to its foundations in seconds. And suddenly we're left with this fact like we can't control things. And not only that, but we can't step out of the reality in time where we live. We have a past that we cannot change. We can't go back and fix it. We can't six months from a decision go back and change that for a different outcome. Neither can we predict the future or know what is coming and plan appropriately. You can do some stuff like, hey, maybe I should save some money for the day when I'm you know, not well enough to work, right? That kind of thing. There's some wisdom, of course, but really we cannot 
fix the future, change the future, know the future, what is coming. And we've all known stories of people who went into the day imagining it would be such and such, and it ended up being something completely different. We are limited. All we are, we're in the present. Like We don't live on this continuum from the day of our de- birth to the day of our death. And here am I right now. I'm, I'm stuck in this very narrow, limited place of right now. And all I can do is decide how somehow to make a choice now with no idea how really it will impact the future because I don't know what's coming. This is, we are limited. We're limited in time. He says, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, actually, really, this, this concept of mist that appears and vanishes is, was very uh, common in Jewish thinking of those who determined to live their lives apart from God. That basically the consequence and the weight of that life is just like a mist that, that pops up and then is gone tomorrow because it's so meaningless ultimately. There's nothing much to it and it is forgotten quickly. I looked up at average life expectancy in America right now. It's 78.93 years. Like some of you guys have passed that. I've got 29 years left if I hit the average. 29 measly little years to live my life. And it is so short, but it's so precious. Both of these concepts were perfectly illustrated by Jesus when he told a parable to a group of people who had gathered. And this man came up to him and said, hey, you're like powerful and of authority. Tell my brother to give me my inheritance. Give me my share of what's mine. Give him, tell him to give me the money. And it says this. It says that Jesus told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Like the farmer looks super foolish right now. He has been, he spent the last days of his life hammering nails into boards and do all this work to build this little kingdom of ease that he would then enjoy, and he lost his life. He was gone. What a waste of time. But from his perspective, this was the right thing to do. I'm going to store this up. I'm going to keep this stuff. It's going to be a fantastic gravy train ride for me with no thought of what, what, what the bigger point is of life. And you know, and we, we kind of go like, huh, what an idiot, right? But then I think we look at ourselves and we look at our own plans and go, how much of it is, is the same stuff for me that ultimately the things I'm putting my time, my effort into are, are relatively futile compared to the shortness of life that is and the lack of understanding that I really have about what is important. The question, what is your life is really important in the center of this passage. What is your life? What is it for? What is the purpose? It's a question people have been asking since the dawn of time. What is your life? And James wants us to know something about that and point us to something better. He says next, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, 
we will live and do this or that. So no diminishment of actually living and doing things, but there's this great qualification above it all for all our plans of saying, if it's the Lord's will, rather than making plans in isolation from God, rather than making plans motivated by personal advancement and gain, rather than making plans that don't take into account the finite nature of life, James calls us to connect our lives to the life of God. Connect our days to the life of God, if it's the Lord's will. There's nothing wrong with travel, right? Nothing wrong with making money. But he says there is something greater that we're called to as human beings. You know, there's a misunderstanding, I think, that permeates our culture about Christianity, that it's all about refraining from doing certain things so as not to incur the anger, wrath, judgment, and punishment of God. It's a moralistic thing. I just must not do this. It's about doing right things. And that in order to be someone who maintains a relationship with God, I must be constantly on the lookout for any flaw or mistake and carefully avoid anything that might draw God's frowning eye upon me. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is about the kingdom of God. The gospel tells us that all of God's anger, righteousness, righteous anger, judgment, all of this has been satisfied completely. But what? No, completely. Jesus said it is finished. And he took all of that and satisfied all of God's judgment upon himself when he took our place. So all the mistakes, the wrong turns, the selfish plans and schemes, the real harm that we cause ourselves and others has been taken care of. And now the gospel says, for all who will come to the creator of life and attach themselves, join their lives to his life, they are free now to live boldly without shame, condemnation, fear of failing in a purposeful collaboration with God in what we call the kingdom of God that is here on earth now. And there's an open door that stands before every person and God says, step through to be with me and live. There's a scripture in Proverbs that James would have been totally aware of that says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And this is the gospel message. No longer I will do this, I will do this. God, what do you want? I will join and attach my life and my plans to your life and your plans and I will live for you. I remember a particular point in my life when I, I just met this guy, his name's Scott Harris, who's one of my best friends. He's actually, it's crazy, man. He, he grew up in eastern Washington in basically a house with no electricity, no running water. Much of the roof was made of blue tarps. Horrendous abuse happened in his family, all these kinds of things. And he's a picture to me of what God will do when someone says, God, I wanna follow you. I want your will to be done in my life. He's now the lead pastor of this flipping mega church in Everett, Washington. I went to his installment. Remember, I was gone. And, but he told me, well, first time I met him, we're just walking around and I was so new back to faith and I was kind of like wide-eyed with wonder about rediscovering what it means to walk with God. And so we're walking around the, the island, which we ended up actually working together. God called me eventually through that connection to work at, at that church. And we're walking along and he said, Grant, you want to realize something? Something along the lines of this, he said, if I've joined myself to God and I was walking in the will of God, there was no power, no force, no wall, no army, no kingdom that could stop me. 
If I give my life and let my life be caught up into the life of God and his will and his purposes in, on this earth, there's nothing that can stop me or I can go on my own fighting all the other people going on their own, facing every obstacle. I can say, God, I want your will. Your will be done in my life. Nothing can stop that. I'll never lack the resources to do that because God owns it all. And it really, the penny dropped for me. I was like, that's amazing. I want that, Scott. Tell me more. This is cool. Well, then he told me the stuff about dying to yourself, taking up your cross and following him, right? But, but the point remains. This is what James is pointing us to. So let's get super practical. What can we do? What should my, what should my daily kind of uh, priority be if this is indeed true? Well, it's kind of in the point that James pointed out, the two ways in which we are limited are the very places where God wants to give us his sense of limitlessness in our lives. The one is that we are limited in knowledge, right? We don't know much. The second is that we have a limited amount of time on the earth. And these aspects of our lives are highlighted in the conclusion. One of the last little things he says in this section uh, on the subject, James says, if anyone then knows the good, knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So therefore, if you think about that kind of positively, if that is true, that if I know the good I do and don't do it, then it's sin for me, then actually to be blessed and to join with what God is doing in the world, I should seek to know what the good is and do it. Know what the good is and regardless of the cost, do it. Attach my life to the life of God. So first thing, to know the good like, I'm limited, I don't know much, but I attach myself to the life and the presence of the God who knows everything, who sees things ahead of me, who can take care of my past, who can be with me in the present, and who can lead me into the future as he incrementally does through every life circumstance, because he knows what is coming, and he knows what I'm here for, and he knows who I am. So I would seek to, if I was wise, and occasionally I sometimes am wise, I would seek to make the priority of my life when it comes to knowledge, to know God in his word, to connect with him through prayer, to build that body of knowledge experientially as I walk in my life in the world and to learn from the things that I learn and to increase that knowledge. And the wonderful thing is James tells us that that's a guarantee that you can get that if you want it and ask for it. The beginning of the whole book, he says, if you encounter difficult trials, Rejoice, because it's going to do something in your life to create perseverance. It's going to test your faith, show you who you really are. That's the truth about you. Then you will grow and mature through these challenges. But then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and we do, let them ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to them. You want knowledge. Seek knowledge to know, to know from God's perspective, his understanding of things, his ways, his commands, and then to do good, to do good. With the little life that I have, it freaked me out this week when I realized I have 29 years left if I hit the average. Like really, it, it, like whoa, what am I doing? How many 90-minute soccer games can I really justifiably watch with that precious little bit of time? 
let alone any of the other time-wasting things that I do sometimes with this little device in my pocket, whatever. Here, so the first thing is to grow in knowledge. I want to know my priority of the day. So the bucket that says knowledge of God and God's ways, I want that to get bigger and, and more full. I've got so much trivia in my head, useless knowledge. I seem to remember that so much better sometimes than the things of God. But I, so I got to do it on purpose, intentionally seeking to know him. Um, knock and you will, and the door will be open to you, right? Ask, you'll receive. Seek and you will find. The second thing is to do the good. James says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sin. So therefore, I would think conversely, the greatest priority in my life should be to do that which I know is good. As I increase in knowledge to say, I will do this because I know it's what my life is for. To serve God, to live each day for him, for his purposes, for his mission, for his glory, for his kingdom, as you in your world. And I love Micah 6, 8. We've talked about this a lot because it really boils down very simply what God wants of us or expects of us. Uh, and it was my first pastor ever when I was just weary. You could tell I was kind of burning out because I wanted to do everything for everyone at all times. He said, Grant, dial it down. What does God expect? Micah says, he's shown you, oh mortal, there's that thing, mortal, limited in time, limited in knowledge, limited, finite, mortal. What does God require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And let him be the one who leads you. So how do I get from here to there? Because there is a goal, right? There is, like, like that mountain, ice canyon thing, you know, right? The goal is to kind of reach the, the trail's end and, and to, to achieve this thing. And therefore, I want to plan well. I want to say, how do I ensure that I am in the best possible place to get to where I need to go? But one of those things is what, what routes you take. And, and really, life is just a series of choices. We truly are in the present. And, and these choices come before us. And so often, we have very much inferior reasons to choose certain things. And sometimes the harder way is the way God would call us to go. And it requires us to submit and humble ourselves before him and say, I don't know how this is gonna turn out. I can see how this would actually be more profitable, but I know you want me to do this. I can see how this would actually feel better, but I know you want me to do this. I see how this would benefit me most of all, but I see how you want me to do this. I see how this was actually gonna cost me dearly to do what, no, this is the other way around, right? It cost me dearly, but I'm gonna do it anyway because I know that my life is attached to your life and I wanna be prepared, I wanna plan well, I wanna be, and it's just a series of choices and it comes to build something in us, a different, quantifiably different kind of a life. I love there's a passage in um, Psalm 37, three. If you guys have been in church for very long, you probably would memorize this at some point. Some mean pastor or leader said, we're memory, memory verse this week, but this is one of those beautiful passages in the Bible, I think, and it says this, delight yourself in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Like, what is happening there? Does that mean if I can fake it, pretending, singing loud enough at church, whatever, he will give me my, the avarice, you know, desire, greed stuff in my life? No, it says, delight yourself in the Lord means to, to grow in knowledge of him and participate in his life in the world and your heart will start to change and you will start to desire the right things more and more and more to delight, to want his ways, to seek him, to know him, to want what he wants, to engage deeply with the flow of his life and yours in the world. And we're really free at that point to live fully without fear because there's no power in the world that can stop that. 
And eternity starts now. I think the whole limitation of life, you know, there's knowledge. God knows everything. Attach yourself to his knowledge. That's a, that's a winning formula. What about the fact that I have 29 years left or even I hit the average? Eternity is now. I don't want to be a mist that, it, that appears uh, is completely consumed with that which is shallow and is not going to last. I want to be attached to a life that will continue on. And I want to start now living according to a kingdom that will never be shaken and will never fail and will never pass away. That is life. That is the life we're called to. When Jesus' friends came to him and said, man, like we've been taught to pray, but we want to know how to pray in this new paradigm that is your king. We don't understand it, but we believe there's something different about this than what we've been taught. You speak with authority. How should we now pray? First, and he said, this is how you should pray, my friends. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I wanna share something that's really vitally important because there's a lot of peddlers of religion who will tell you that the good life is a life where you just do the right thing all the time. You be a do-gooder. Do this, don't do that, and it's all gonna be good. And what you end up doing, actually, is trading one futile form of living for another form of futile living that is called religion, which is basically thinking that you're gonna do this and God's gonna be pleased with you. This is not the life that we're called to join with. Um, hey there, kiddo. This is, the, this is the alarm clock says, you've been going too long. <laughs> hey kid, I got two minutes left. Hey, Shannon. <laughs> um, do we have a translation? Um, what does he say? He says, anyone then who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it is sin for them. There's something really important here because you can't just read this in a book. Even if it is the Bible, that's one way of looking at it. It's like this moralistic thing saying like, I'm gonna read this thing and I'm gonna do it by the sheer determination of my willpower. It's just me again. It's just me doing a different way of controlling everything, right? What I need is my mind to be renewed so I can know what is good by the power that is within me. The Holy Spirit opens my eyes to this whole new reality, changes my heart to the world around me, changes my desires, not in some shallow behavioral means or, or approach, but actually intrinsically me, I am changing. So not only am I beginning to know the good, but I'm starting to live the good because Christ is living his life through me. That's the only way we can do it. I don't wanna sell you another form of religion. I don't wanna sell you some bigger job to do or more burdens to do. I'm saying step into life because God made you, he knows you. There's an open door, step through it. Leave the dead stuff behind and step into life. Ephesians chapter two, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna share this. Um, as a means, because Paul's talking to these people who have actually done this, they have, they have experienced it, and he's basically affirming what has happened in their lives, that they are no longer living according to this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, and I hope it works out. They've given their lives to God, and he is true to his word and taking it. So there's two sections to this. The first part is about who we were, and it's very much just the default human living, the motivation and then ultimately that it's a, it's a mist, it's a vapor, it is dead. 
The second one is what God has done for us. Okay, so the first, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. This is the spirit of the world. Mine, me, my, now, I want it, I'll take it, I'll keep it. Don't dare get in my way. Also, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's the mode for living. What I need, what I want. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. My life caught up into God's life in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. It's not simply another task to add to your already large list of tasks for the better life. It is a fundamental change of nature whereby grace, my life enters into the life of God. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's a step we need to take if we even enter into this. Otherwise, we're just simply substituting one form of flawed, broken living for another one which maybe makes us look better because maybe we'll clean up a little bit. Maybe we won't cuss so much, you know? Maybe you'll quit smoking cigarettes, you know? Maybe we'll just be a bit kinder, perhaps. But what we're looking for is fundamental change where literally God's life is, my life is caught up in his life. Um, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and then I'm gonna plug some events. But not just simply for the fact of saying, hey, we're doing this at church, you should come but really as a means of doing this, having this be actively a part of our lives. Uh, the reason that we do things at church and have events is, is for the purpose that if we say we want to grow both in the knowledge of who God is, make that the priority of our lives, and in the actual carrying out of, of what comes from the earth at our service and, and, and obedience and following him, then I would encourage you to show up to these things um, I would actually encourage you to do this, to let God disrupt your plans. Let God disrupt your plans. Because I know we all have things that we, we do. And I think so often, you know FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Like it's, people say it's a young person's thing. I think we all like to keep our calendar open just in case something more important comes up. But I would tell you, from my experience, when I decided that when there's something that involves an under, a growing an understanding of who God is, and an ability to serve God in this world, that takes priority. And if something comes up, I'm gonna calendar that, and I will trust that God will take care of all the other meaningless stuff I could have done in its place, right? So I wanna encourage you guys, and I don't wanna be a bully, okay? But we have this thing coming up in Lent, and uh, simply is just having soup and bread together, and it's an exploration of the Apostles' Creed, which is what we say we believe. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and his son, Jesus. And we're gonna go through and explore what that looks like. If you're someone who says, I want to live the life of God and have it in my life, this is what it's for. It's not just so we can have soup together. It's not so I can go, hey, elders, look how many people came. Am I doing a good job? It is literally to step into life which involves understanding who God is in community with other people, 
and being willing to sit by someone and share your life, share your story, and let God show himself in that community and in that place and that space. So I'd encourage you to go against your resistant nature and your desire for whatever it is that would prevent you from doing so, and go online and sign up for the Lent thing. And I will not be mad if you don't come to every single one of them. But I think, I think if you come to one, you will have a desire for more. And that's why we do things. The women's retreat's another thing. Sign up for the women's retreat. Because in that space, God's gonna be there. And I guarantee you that you will meet him in a, in a new and significant way. You will understand more about yourself, about God, about the world around you. And you have an opportunity to, to carry out this stuff in real practical ways with your sisters, your mothers, your grandmothers. Um, small groups, next time is a small group. Just sign up. Like I dare you. The adventure awaits, you know? There's a deeper, scarier. There's nothing better than plunging headlong into God <laughs> with your ears pinned back and your hair flowing in the wind. Like, scary as heck, but you're doing it with other people and you know he'll never fail you. And that's what he's calling us to do. Um, so we're gonna respond with this song. If you are feeling stuck, if you're feeling like, man, I've just been on a treadmill. I don't even know why I'm doing what I'm doing but I think it's probably just because I, I, I want to make sure I have what I need. You know, maybe you just face going a bit stagnant, a bit cold. Sing these words out you know, like you mean it and let God change our hearts and draw us into his life together.